It is in view of God's worthiness to be praised, and it is in view of our dependence on his grace that we now look to God's word. I want to invite you to open to Luke chapter 10 this morning. In Luke's gospel last week, if you were with us, you know that we examined a discussion between Jesus and a lawyer, a scholar of the law, a scribe, someone who knew God's word inside and out. He came to debate with Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi. And Jesus asked that man a question. In the midst of their discussion, he said, what is the requirement of the law? What does the law say? And the man in verse 27 of Luke chapter 10 answered correctly. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then goes on to tell the parable, that familiar story of the good Samaritan, illustrating what it looks like to love your neighbor as the law requires, illustrating what the second commandment really means. And then in what happens next, we find another story, a new situation. It's no longer a debate with an antagonist, this lawyer. It's now a friendly relationship. It's a situation in the home of of a friend of Christ, a woman named Martha. And in what happens here, we find an illustration, not of the second commandment, what it looks like to love our neighbor, but really a beautiful fleshing out of the first commandment, what it really means to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, what it looks like to love God supremely. I invite you to look with me in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, as we consider God's word to us this morning. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Lord, we do come to your word this morning mindful of what the Psalms tell us that the unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Father, we come confessing our need, our need for understanding, our need to see, our need for light, for revelation. Lord, help us to understand the glory of Christ, the sufficiency of his grace, the infinite value of his word. Lord, give us a heart that is eager and hungry this morning that we might see and receive and believe all that you would have for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a 19th century Scottish pastor, a man who burned out fairly bright and fairly early. He died young. His name was Robert Murray McShane. And he once said this, no amount of activity in the king's service will make up for neglect of the king himself. Those words really capture the heart of our text this morning. And this story, I have to confess, is deeply convicting for me. I find that so often I follow in the footsteps of Martha, one who is distracted with much serving, one whose heart can be occupied with all the burdens and responsibilities and the cares of life and even good things. 
It's easy for me personally, maybe you're the same, to focus on the good at the expense of the one thing that is necessary. And the danger of preaching a text like this is that understanding the truth is easily mistaken for a mastery of the truth. Many of you know this text as well. You understand the principles that are being taught here. But explaining God's word is often a little easier than actually applying it, isn't it? And so while this may be a familiar text to you, and while it is my duty this morning to teach and exhort, I just want to say this text has been really good for me this week to sit under it, and I hope it will both challenge and benefit your heart as well, the way that the Lord has used it in mine. And and the point from this text is fairly clear. There is nothing more needful than drawing near to Christ and receiving his word. If you're a note taker, that's the big idea. That is the point. That is the central idea that this text presents to us in this authoritative pronouncement by Jesus that there is nothing more needful than drawing near to Christ, drawing near to him to receive his word. The setting for our story is a pit stop along the way to Jerusalem. If you look in verse 38, it says they are on their way. You might ask, on their way from where and to where? Well, if we jump back to the end of chapter 9, Luke has marked for us in the life and ministry of Jesus a definite, uh, a definite shift in the focus and the purpose of Jesus' ministry. In Luke 9:51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's where he's on the way to go to. Jesus is on his way to the cross, and every step is bringing him closer and closer to that destination. And on their journey, throughout Jesus's ministry, their habit was to stay in the homes of people who were receptive to Jesus's message and Jesus's ministry. I mean, this is what Jesus told the 12 to do when he sent them out on their mission. He said, stay in the home of whoever it is who receives you and eat their food and sleep under their roof and then go on your way. He said the same thing to 72 witnesses that he sent out on a different short-term ministry trip. And unlike the Samaritan village that refused to welcome Jesus in chapter 9, here we find an instance where Jesus is being shown hospitality. It's the home of a woman named Martha. As they were on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Martha, the sister of Mary who had a brother named Lazarus. This family was from a small town that John tells us is called Bethany. It's a village about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, Luke doesn't mention this location, and I think it's probably because he's placing this story here in Luke's gospel, not for chronological purposes, because it happened right after the the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, but probably because of thematic purposes. He's trying to show love for God right next to love for neighbor after this section of teaching. So I, I think that this story there, it might have actually happened at a different point chronologically, but it fits so beautifully here in the flow of what Luke is presenting as he recounts the ministry of Jesus. John's gospel, if we go to chapter 11, chapter 12, and John, it tells us that this family was close personal friends with Jesus. They knew him well. They had embraced his message, and they believed his word in John eleven two, John tells us it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Jesus said that she was anointing him ahead of time for his burial. It was an extravagant display of worship and adoration for Christ. And you probably are familiar with the story of their brother Lazarus, this man who fell sick and he died. 
In John chapter 11, when Jesus arrived at the scene, Jesus said to Martha, this same woman, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. It's clear that this family loves Jesus. It is clear that they believe in Jesus. And here we see them welcoming Christ and his followers into their home. And in the home, in this setting, what we find is a tale of two sisters. We find a little bit of a contrast between Mary and Martha. We find that one is serving and one is sitting. One is distracted and one is devoted. We see in verse 39 that she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. The fact that one of them is serving and one of them is sitting is fairly unusual. It's unusual that Mary would be sitting and listening to Jesus on two accounts. First of all, to sit at the feet of the teacher was to assume the posture of a disciple. Mary is basically saying, I'm enrolled in this class. This is my teacher. I'm his follower, and I'm here to learn from him. Luke tells us that she's listening carefully to him. She's soaking up everything that he's saying, hanging on every word, paying close attention to his message. And that might not seem very striking. It might not seem out of the ordinary to us. But it was a big deal at that time because, as we've noticed before, Jewish rabbis never took female disciples. Those classes were only open to men in that day and age. But Jesus, as we've seen, is a different kind of teacher, right? He welcomes all kinds of people. He welcomes any who will come into the school of discipleship. That's why we find in chapter 8 a Gentile man from the country of the Gerasenes, this man who's been freed from a legion of demons, we find him in his right mind sitting at Jesus' feet. Jesus welcomes him into the school of discipleship. In chapter 17, we find a Samaritan who's healed of leprosy falling at Jesus' feet and giving him thanks, and Jesus receives him. Here we have a woman sitting at Jesus' feet being taught by him. Luke, the author of this gospel, who is himself a Gentile, he knows what it's like to feel like he's an outsider. He knows what it's like to be considered an unlikely convert, a surprising candidate to be a follower of Jesus. And he's eager to show us that Jesus makes none of these distinctions. So Luke is full of surprises throughout his gospel. We find a believing centurion, a Roman soldier, in chapter 7. We find the good Samaritan as Jesus' choice illustration here in chapter 10. So Luke is is eager to point out these details. So it's surprising to us that Mary is sitting and listening as a woman, but it's also surprising at a second level. And this is surprising in a way that probably every mom, every wife can definitely understand. Usually the women were to help serve the guests, and Mary is busy listening to Jesus instead of busy helping her sister. And there was a cultural expectation that Mary would have helped pull the weight for such tasks. And especially since it was in her family's home, you would think that she would be pitching in. You would think that she would be helping her sister. Her actions are contrasted with Martha. But Martha, while Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, while Mary is listening to him, it says, but Martha, verse 40, was distracted with much serving. Martha's wrapped up in hosting the guests, finding seats for everyone. 
preparing the food, greeting those who are coming in, setting out uh, um, the, the dishes, making sure they have enough to drink, probably even preparing places for people to sleep later. And with all her serving, she's become a bit frantic, a bit preoccupied. Luke says she is flat out distracted. Now, before we dunk on Martha, there's something good and noble here in her service. And that should be acknowledged. I mean, what Martha is doing shows love, does it not? Love for Christ, love for his mission, love for his servants, love for her fellow believers in the Messiah. It shows humility that she's willing to sacrifice to offer her home and her resources and her time and her energy to bless all these people. It shows her generosity. It's likely not going to be repaid. She's welcomed Jesus into her home and embraced the responsibility to provide for him and his followers. And that's no small task. Friends, this is faith in action. So let's not be overly critical of Martha. In fact, the word serve here, she's distracted with much serving, is the same Greek word that we get our word for deacon from. It's a word that's often translated minister. She is ministering to these people, giving of her effort and energy in her home to bless others. And, and we know that Jesus elevates the glory of service often. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, verse 43, Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is glory in serving. There is glory in spending yourself for the good of others and the glory of God. It is noble. This is true greatness on display. Friends, hard work, hard work in the service of Jesus, that's how we lay up treasures in heaven. So do not be quick to judge Martha. But Luke points out that though the service itself is good, there is something that is not good in her heart. That's the problem, that she is distracted with her much serving. Her impulse to serve, her sense of duty, has actually started to cloud her priorities. Something other than Jesus, something other than the words of Jesus has actually captured her focus. And what that means is that she is missing out. She is missing out. It will not be long before Jesus is gone. The days have drawn near for him to be lifted up. And these moments with Jesus, these opportunities to be with him, to hear his voice, to receive his teaching, those opportunities will soon be passed. You might wonder, why is Martha so distracted? Why is she so preoccupied? What, what's the motive behind this? Was she concerned with her reputation? Again, those of us who have hosted events or people in our home know that your home and the service that's rendered there does reflect on you, doesn't it? Was she concerned with what people would think? Was she concerned with whether the food would be enough and whether it would be, be cooked properly and whether it would be appreciated? Was she concerned with what people would think of her hosting abilities? Did she maybe have this gut-level feeling that, that peace comes from a completed task list? If she can just get everything done, that is what her soul needs. Was she trying to impress Jesus? We don't know. It's really all speculation, isn't it? Because the text doesn't say, but we can ask those questions of our own hearts, right? We know the things that preoccupy us. We know the things that motivate us. We know the things that distract us and might even pull our attention away from Christ and his word. 
So Martha is distracted with much serving. She sees Mary just sitting there, and she is, maybe even understandably, she's frustrated. She's frustrated. This frustration is seen in her request in verse 40. Martha, who is distracted with much serving, she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. I think it's easiest to lose patience with the people that are closest to us, isn't it? With our own family, with our spouse, with our children, definitely with our siblings, right? Because we expect more from them. You kind of wonder if Mary had tried, or if Martha rather, had tried making eye contact with Mary from across the room as she's, you know, carrying dishes in and out of the kitchen. Maybe she had tried to wave her down. Maybe she had mouthed, help me, you know, from across the room. And... Mary has ignored it. Maybe she even went over and tapped her on the shoulder. But Mary stayed put. Mary's eyes were fixed on Jesus. And so as the pressure rises, as the time drags on, Martha's patience decreases and this frustration spills over. And she appeals to Jesus to intervene. She's given up trying to get Mary's attention. Notice her complaint. She does address Jesus as Lord. She shows him a measure of respect. She acknowledges his authority. Right? Remember, she loves Jesus. She believes in Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he is the resurrection and the life. She calls him Lord. But her words reveal really not just a complaint about her sister, but she's actually registering a complaint about Jesus. There's an accusation here. Don't you care? Don't you care? That's what she says. Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. She's overwhelmed, and Jesus is letting Mary just sit there, which causes her to question him. Do you not understand? Do you not have any sympathy for my situation? Do you not appreciate the effort and time it's taking to get everything done to take care of you guys? And I think her words here actually anticipate a a positive response. It's really a rhetorical question. Do you not care, assuming that, well, of course you do. I, I know who you are. I know what you're like. Surely you care, which is why she says, tell her then then, since I'm sure you do care, tell her to help me. As we examine these words, it shows us where her focus really is. You see all those personal pronouns in there? She has left me alone. Tell her to help me. When our eyes are not on Christ, our default is to focus on ourselves, isn't it? We find a hint here of self-pity. Maybe even self-righteousness in her words. I'm the only one getting anything done around here. And then Jesus responds in verses 41 through 42. And this is really the heart of the passage. And this is where we discover the truth that our own souls need. Verses 41 through 42. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Martha has called Jesus Lord. But did you notice she's trying to tell him what to do? It's actually her own agenda she wants to get accomplished. She's trying to use his authority to accomplish her own will. But Jesus, the wise master, answers her in a way that is authoritative. And it's not what she expects. He has a different agenda in mind than what Mary has her heart set on. And it's in these words of Jesus that we find exhortation and encouragement 
for our own busy and burdened hearts. He says, Martha, Martha, this repetition of her name, it's, it's an expression of his tenderness. Despite her brash request, he is not rebuking her. He's not putting her in his place. Jesus does care. Jesus does understand. And he does have sympathy for her. But his concern is not so much that her hands are full. His concern is that her heart is so full. She's burdened with many cares and concerns. He says, Martha, Martha, there's personal affection here. And he says, you are anxious and troubled about many things. He's diagnosing what's going on in her heart. There's a lot of things we worry about. There's many things that, that compete for our attention and demand our efforts. And, and as we live our lives, until these tasks, these responsibilities, these burdens are relieved somehow, the water in our heart churns like the sea in a storm. And Jesus sees that. He can see right through her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. He knows that she is totally preoccupied with food and with plans and with logistics and she's missing out. How would the Lord Jesus evaluate your heart today? Are you anxious and troubled with many things? Are you distracted with much serving, with much working, with much study, with much sports, with many projects and tasks, with family drama, with financial pressures, with health concerns, and we could go on and on and on. Are you anxious, troubled with many things? There are real and heavy responsibilities that we all deal with. And Jesus doesn't minimize any of those. Even ministry can become these things that actually cloud our vision and keep us from seeing Christ. Even things like evangelism and discipleship and counseling and preaching and raising your kids and loving your spouse and all of the planning and the effort that goes into a worship service like this every week. All of those things can actually cause us to be anxious and troubled and distracted. The danger is that these things, even good things, get in the way of the one thing that is the most important. And although Martha wanted Jesus to correct Mary, instead Jesus actually commends Mary. Look at what he says in verse 42. Though Martha is anxious and troubled about many things, he says, but one thing is necessary. One thing is truly necessary. And friends, if there's anything that sinks into your soul this morning, let it be these words from our master, from our savior, Jesus. There is one thing that is necessary. Of course, there are many things to be concerned about, many good things even to be busy with. But Jesus says our one priority that must always be held above the rest is not the things we do for Jesus but it's with Christ himself. The priority of our heart must be drawing near to Christ to receive from him, to receive his grace, to receive his assurance of pardon, to receive, to receive his word. He says Mary has actually made the right choice. She hasn't made a mistake. She hasn't done something wrong. She has not neglected her duties. She has actually chosen, Jesus says, the good portion the good portion. You see, there's no greater good than Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And our attitude towards Jesus is really reflective of our attitude towards the glory and goodness of God. 
Psalm 16.5 says, the Lord is my chosen portion. There's that word portion. He says, Mary has chosen the good portion. Like the psalmist who knows that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Later on in that same psalm, Psalm 16, verse 11, David writes, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. Mary has not made a mistake in sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his words. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 63, 4. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Listen, in choosing to draw near to Jesus, Mary has chosen the good portion. As Martha is fretting over serving a meal, providing food and drink for everyone present, Mary has chosen what matters most, sitting and reflecting upon Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God a gospel feast that has been prepared for her by Jesus, who is the true host. Jesus says that what she has chosen, verse 42, will not be taken away from her. It will not be taken away from her. He will not send her away. He will not rebuke her for insisting on the satisfaction of her own soul, the feeding of her own faith by listening to Jesus Christ. And even more importantly, what she is gaining from Christ has eternal value. The meal that Martha was serving was temporary. The pots and the pans, the plates and the dishes, the pillows that they sat on, the table that was being spread before them, that would all pass away. But the life that Jesus gives, the words that Jesus speaks, that endures forever. She has truly chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Which means it's actually Martha, not Mary, who needs to reevaluate her choices. Jesus does not rebuke Martha, but he does gently redirect her to something better. Pointing her away from the things that preoccupied her heart, urging her to set her focus on him. There is nothing more needful for Martha in that moment and for you and me today Nothing more needful than drawing near to Christ to sit at his feet and to receive from him. Friends, if we're going to do this, it's going to require two things from us. It's going to require two things. First of all, if we're going to draw near to Christ, it requires that we rightly evaluate his worth and his word. That's really what we're doing. When we make a choice to allow different things to preoccupy our, our heart, we're making a value statement. We're evaluating the worth of Jesus Christ and his word. When we don't have time to be in God's word each day. When Sunday feels like a chore and a duty rather than something that our soul needs to be with the people of God and to praise his name and to hear his word. When other things crowd that out. We're basically making a value statement about Jesus and about his word. We draw near to Christ to be with him, whether that is personally alone in prayer with the Bible or whether it's corporately together with our brothers and sisters on the Lord's Day on Sunday. 
We draw near to Christ because he is worthy of our time. He deserves our attention. He deserves our devotion. Remember that time when Mary anointed Jesus' feet? There were others that, again, are criticizing Mary for her extravagant worship. That could have been sold. It could have been given to the poor. Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. But what Mary did was a beautiful thing. Devotion to Christ, worship to Christ is a way for us to recognize his worth. And this is needful for us to worship Christ because of who he is. Remember who Jesus is? Just if we survey Luke's gospel, Jesus in chapter 1 is said to be great and glorious, the son of the most high, the son of God. Chapter 2, verse 11, he is our savior, Christ the Lord. That's who was born in Bethlehem. Chapter 5, 24, shows us he is the son of man who has divine authority to forgive sins. Chapter 6, verse 5, says he is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who gives true rest. Chapter 8, as Jesus calms the storm, we see that he's the sovereign creator who commands the winds and the waves. In chapter 9, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The voice of the Father thunders from heaven in chapter 9 saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. If we're going to draw near to Christ, it requires that we recognize his worth. The greatest commandment, as the lawyer rightly confessed, is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. And the way we do that is by worshiping Christ by holding him to be precious and preeminent over all other things. Jesus is supremely worthy. And when we neglect his word, when we neglect prayer, when we neglect the corporate gathering of the church to worship Christ, we are failing to acknowledge his infinite worth. Devotion to Christ and delighting in Christ is to always be our first and highest priority. So we draw near to Christ because we recognize his worth, but also the precious value of his word. Remember, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and this is not just some contemplative, warm and fuzzy Zen moment where she's sort of just basking in the glow. She's listening to his teaching. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's explaining how he has come to fulfill God's plans. He's describing to them the nature of the kingdom, the truth of the gospel, the judgment that's going to come, and his plans for his servants. And she's taking notes. She's listening to his teaching, listening to his word. So as we draw near to Christ, this is not, Jesus isn't saying you need to just quit doing all these things and go be a monk and sit on a mountain somewhere and empty your mind and just try to feel close to Christ. No, he's, he's urging us to draw near to Christ to receive his word. In John chapter 6, Simon Peter confesses, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus has asked his disciples if they're going to leave because he said some hard things. Peter goes, where else are we going to go? Who else would we listen to? What other message is there that's worth hearing? You have the words of life. Friends, as you draw near to Christ, we draw near to receive the word. It's in his word that we receive life. It's in the word we find eternal truth and wisdom. It's in the word we find meaning and purpose. It's in the word that we find instruction and guidance. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Friends, some of you have missed out on a precious gift that God has given us in his word. You've not tasted the sweetness of this honey. You've not laid hold of the riches that are found here that's better than gold and silver because you've just been busy with other things, distracted. Friends, we draw near to Christ to receive his word and his teaching, his words give us life. This is not some mystical communion with an empty mind. This is laying hold of eternal truth. It's given to us through the word, the incarnate word, Jesus himself. And this is what our souls need. And even something as great as serving, doing things for Christ, must never displace feasting on his word and drawing near to Jesus himself. Drawing near to Jesus requires rightly evaluating his worth and his word. There's a second requirement. Drawing near to Jesus also requires that we rightly evaluate the place of our secondary responsibilities. That we must rightly require, or rightly evaluate rather, the place of our secondary responsibilities. As we've pointed out, it's easy to become distracted with good things, even ministry, doing things for Jesus. But drawing near to Christ to worship him and feast on his word is more important than what we do for him. It's more important, as we see in this story, than even cultural customs and expectations. It's even more important than family expectations and family dynamics. Now, I do want to make clear, busyness itself is not bad. It's easy to demonize busyness. It's easy to, to criticize those who are, are active in serving the Lord. But that's, again, that's not what's being condemned here. Remember that Moses was incredibly busy. In fact, his father-in-law Jethro saw just how busy he was with serving and said, what you're doing is so good, you actually need more people to help you. It's not that that task should be neglected. It's that there's more hands on deck needed to get the job done. The serving was actually good. The apostles were incredibly busy serving. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them talking about the other apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Hard work and busyness for Christ, serving Christ is a good thing. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. So it's not busyness that's bad. And it's especially not busyness for Christ that's bad but busyness with the wrong things at the wrong time in a way that pushes Christ and his word to the margins. That's bad. So the goal is not to pit serving against worship or public ministry against private prayer and devotion. We just need to keep these things in the right order and in the right relationship. 
I think Jesus is the perfect example of this. Jesus, who is often exhausted from a busy day of traveling and teaching and healing and casting out demons and visiting the sick, and it's often early in the morning and late at night, and he's going all day long. Jesus is busy. He's not just hanging out. But there's also those times where Jesus says no to the busyness of life. He withdraws to get away by himself. He goes up on the mountain to pray, to commune with his father. Like Jesus told Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Jesus is the prime example of holding these twin duties of communion with God and also doing the things God has called us to do. He holds them in that right relationship. In fact, it's only when we abide in Christ and draw near to him that we become equipped and empowered to serve him fruitfully. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And unless you abide in me and I in you, you can do nothing. It's only when we're connected to Christ. It's only when we, we draw near to him and receive his word. It's then that we become fruitful and we must be fruitful. There must be fruit. Otherwise, you're a dead, dry branch that is good for nothing except to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So we need to understand the right place of our responsibilities, our duties, the things we do to serve God. It only comes after our communion with Christ, and it flows from our communion with Christ. Again, I think this is really a commentary on that summary of the law. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second that flows from it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Both are necessary. We don't pit them against each other, but they do come in a specific order. One of them is labeled number one, and one of them is labeled number two. So if we're going to draw near to Christ, it requires that we rightly evaluate his worth and his word, and that we rightly evaluate the place of our secondary responsibilities as well. In conclusion, I just want to ask you, have you allowed things, even good things, to crowd your heart and to perhaps displace Jesus himself as your highest priority. Take some inventory for a moment. What is it that's captured your attention? What is it that has consumed your energy? What is it that has dominated your focus? Perhaps today you need to hear the words of Christ and be reminded that one thing, one thing is necessary when we fix our eyes on Christ, when we allow him to be supreme in our heart, Jesus says then we are choosing the good portion, something that can never be taken away. Will you bow and pray with me? Lord, my heart feels pierced as it is every time I read this text. With the insufficiency of my own love for you, my own devotion to you and your word, and Lord, I'm sure there are many of my brothers and sisters here today who can relate to that. I pray that you would forgive us for those times when we do not value your worth and your word as we should. Forgive us for those times when we elevate good things that are secondary things to be the primary thing in our hearts. We are often distracted, anxious, and troubled with many things. Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself this morning with these kind and gentle words that you spoke to Martha. You affirmed your care for her. 
You redirected her to something better. What she needed in that moment was not help with the dishes. What she needed was you. What she needed was to hear from you, to be with you, to sit at your feet. You wanted her to benefit from that. And Lord, you want to give us that same grace as well. So we thank you for your kind rebuke. We thank you for your gentle correction. We thank you for the grace and the truth that has been given to us through Christ. Lord, my heart is also heavy for some in this room who may not even know you. Perhaps they think that what you want from them is to go out and do a whole bunch of good works and you want them to jump through all these hoops, but there's really only one thing that's necessary for them. They need to draw near to you and receive the life and the salvation that only you can provide. They need to understand it's your work on the cross, it's your resurrection that actually meets their deepest need. And it's actually your work on the cross and your resurrection that guarantees the fulfillment of the Father's will. Neither of those things are within our power to do. So I pray for those who are lost, those who do not have life, that they would confess what Peter recognized, that you have the words of life. You are the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that they would come to you today and receive you and receive the good word of your gospel, that promise that whoever repents of sin and believes in Christ will be saved. Lord, may we grow in our love for you. May we grow in wisdom. Lord, we need wisdom and discernment to, to be able to identify how our lives should be structured, how our time should be spent, what things we should commit to, what things we should say yes to, what things we should say no to. Maybe there's some who aren't serving enough. Maybe there's others that have become preoccupied. Lord, align us with your will. Use your word to purify us and grow us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.